0: Thank you all for coming and joining us here um, in our intimate space. Um, Welcome to the inaugural lecture of the new Faith and Reason Lecture Series at Christendom College. This series was born in the spirit of Faith and Reason, the academic journal of Christendom College. The mission of that journal was to create an educated Catholic laity, a laity in love with all that is good, true, and beautiful. This lecture series hopes to continue that mission, but by focusing more particularly on the students of Christendom College. The lecture series will allow individual academic departments to invite quality speakers to present meaningful ideas to their majors, as well as to the college community. This year, the series is in the hands of the Department of English Language and Literature. And we've invited two speakers, Dr. Gerard Wegemer, who will speak in April about St. Thomas More and the liberal arts education. And Dr. Michael Mack, who I'm pleased to introduce to you now. Dr. Mack, you come most carefully upon your hour. Come on, English majors at least. You, start getting these things. you don't have to laugh or anything. I just want to make sure. Okay, good. Dr. Mack completed his undergraduate work at Harvard, or Harvard, whatever, and created his, or sorry, received his doctorate from Columbia. He has been teaching at the Catholic University of America for 14 years. He is associate professor of English, and he specializes in the work of Shakespeare and Renaissance literature. 2005 saw the publication of his book, Sidney's Poetics, Imitating Creation. He is the former director of the university honors program at CUA, and is currently dean of undergraduate studies at the same institution. I had the blessing of enrolling in one of uh, the first graduate classes, Dr. Mack taught at CUA, one who I'm sure uh, he's probably suppressed in his memory, a class entitled Shakespeare's Problem Plays. I don't know if there were problem students or not, but we survived. Uh, Maybe it won't surprise you to learn that Hamlet was among those plays. Of that class, I may say the memory be green. Okay, another (laughs) obscure reference to Hamlet, but there it is. Uh, Though the play seems at times to be madness, yet there is method in it. Okay, sorry. They're not working. <laughs> and that's what Dr. Mack helped, helped us see. It would have been beyond my wildest dreams as a rogue and peasant slave, I mean as a grad student, uh, to think I'd one day be working at Christendom College and in a position to bring Dr. Mack out to help more students appreciate the work of the Bard. Well, as brevity is the soul of wit, I'll step out of the way and join you in welcoming Dr. Michael Mack, whose talk is entitled Hamlet, Shakespeare's Mousetrap. Dr. Mack, the readiness is all.
1: Thank you very much, you very much Dr. Stanford. And I, I, The ring of that is wonderful, doctor. It, had I known uh, about this, if I had a prophetic soul and could have seen this offer coming many years ago, I would have been much kinder in that seminar. Okay. <laughs> it's wonderful to be here thank you very much for the invitation it really is an honor for me and I uh, having uh, just received from Dr. Rice a tour of campus I have to say I'm absolutely charmed Uh, you have a very special place here and uh, I I want to come back so I'll try not to blow it (laughs) as you may recall The mousetrap is the name Hamlet gives for the play that the traveling players mount under his direction. Otherwise known as the murder of Gonzago, and supposedly based on a real murder at an Italian court, the play is an obvious mirror of Hamlet's father's death as related by the ghost. Hamlet wants to use the play to confirm both the veracity of the ghost and Claudius' guilt. As he says so memorably, the play is the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. What I want to do this afternoon is to explore how the mousetrap functions within the world of Hamlet. Specifically, I want to see if it gives any clues as to how Shakespeare intends Hamlet to function within our world. My suspicion is that Hamlet is the thing to catch the conscience of the audience. I'll be interested in getting your reactions in the Q&A. Since this is about conscience and since you may be moved deeply by my remarks, if anyone has to run off to confession or something like that, I'll understand. One thing that the mousetrap does, for sure, is to create confusion. This is, of course, something Shakespeare's play does from beginning to end. So before focusing on the mousetrap, I would like to spend a few moments on the confusion created by the characteristic, created by and characteristic of Shakespeare's most vexing play. On your handout, if uh, if it helps to follow, um, I'm looking at the opening of the play for just a moment, and I'll refer to it uh, a little bit as I go along. And as you see, there'll be some images later on, uh, but I'm not going to be talking about this for a while. However, feel free to look at it so that you don't have to look at me, and things work out better that way, quite often. (laughs) From the play's opening, Who's There?, Shakespeare intentionally disorients the audience of Hamlet. Francisco, the guard who is on duty, should be the one to say, Halt, who goes there? But instead it is Bernardo, the guard who is coming onto the scene, onto stage, who interrogates the sentry at his post. This kind of disorienting reversal is a fitting opening for this play. Shortly after, we learn from Marcello's question, thats the ne- and you'll find that in the next uh, uh, section of the handout, lines one, uh, line 70 to 79 in the first scene. We learn that Denmark is making 24-7 preparations for war which has erased the division between Sunday and the work week and made the night joint laborer with the day. This is understandable if war is approaching, but that it only takes 160 lines to get from the midnight change of guard with which the play opens to the appearance of Dawn in russet mantle clad at the end of the scene defies any reasonable explanation. That's an unnaturally short night, even for the winter in Denmark. That the personification of dawn comes so hastily and at the end of the opening scene, rather than at its beginning, uh, a place anyone from Homer on would consider most appropriate. Well, it's perfectly fitting in the backwards, upside down world of Hamlet. When Hamlet later will tell us that the time is out of joint, He's only confirming at that point what we should already have noticed. Of course, the character of Hamlet is as disconcerting as the play. When he appears in black, we are sympathetic. But his incessant wordplay becomes annoying, not only to his mother and uncle slash stepfather, uh, but also to us in the audience. While we want to see more grieving from Gertrude, We also want to tell Hamlet, enough. Much stronger, of course, is our reaction to Hamlet when he verbally abuses Ophelia. Yes, she has allowed herself to be used by her father as he spies on Hamlet. But does Hamlet have to resort to vulgarity and sarcasm? The audience is left in a similar bind at numerous moments in the play, caught between wanting to sympathize with Hamlet and wanting to slap him. Of course, there is a method to Hamlet's madness and to Shakespeare's. Central to the method is manipulating expectations. Shakespeare and Hamlet both know what people want. And by refusing to be easy dates, they protract our unease and make us unusually aware of our desires. We want Hamlet to confide in Ophelia. We want them to get together and together to overcome the corruption of the older generation and renew Denmark by making baby Hamlets and baby Ophelios. In case you're not sure, Shakespeare does not give us that. Despite the comic, the comedic urges Shakespeare elicits in us, his audience. Uh, This is not a comedy, obviously. It is a tragedy. And more specifically, it's a revenge tragedy. As popular and bloody a form in Shakespeare's day as it is in ours, the genre comes with a complex set of built-in expectations. The most obvious expectation, of course, is that the hero will get revenge. After The Mousetrap, when Hamlet comes across Claudius, seemingly at prayer, our desire is one with Hamlet's. We want to see Claudius get what he deserves. When we see Hamlet delay and hear him voice his scruples about killing Claudius, that there is no justice in sending a praying Claudius to heaven when Claudius sent the sleeping and unconfessed King Hamlet to wander in purgatorial fire, we practically want to shout out and tell him what we know, which is that Claudius is not really praying. We want to shout out to Hamlet. Just do it. The play is made to make us want that. Now, I know you're you're very good people here, and you, you know not to, if you're in the audience, not to shout to people on stage. And, and you may know that revenge is you know, a little questionable. But come on. You want to see Claudius get it, don't you? <laughs> I may, in the course of this talk, reveal all kinds of things about me that you really wish you didn't know, but just play along, though, okay? Pretend you're as bad as I am for a while. Okay, he doesn't stab Claudius at that point. Obviously, it's too soon after the mousetrap for a proper resolution. As much as we want to see Hamlet poke Claudius, we understand that the delay is important for dramatic reasons. But after the play has been going on for four-plus hours, we no longer see any real need for prolonging the agony. Therefore, when Laertes challenges Hamlet to a fencing match and Horatio urges Hamlet not to fight and offers to make an excuse and to stall for him if if he has any misgivings, well, we practically want to strangle Horatio. We want a resolution, one way or another. This is the point, however, when we learn that Hamlet's mind has been transformed. It was during his interrupted journey to England that he learned to act without a plan. He learned that the readiness is all. It is not the readiness we might expect, as in someone being armed and ready, Uh, Indeed, at the moment of readiness, he lacks not only a weapon but a plan. Uh, From our perspective and from Horatio's, he doesn't seem ready at all. At this point in the play, the case is just the opposite for Claudius and uh, Laertes. They have conspired and devised a treacherous plan to kill Hamlet with an unbaited sword and or poison. Their plot brings about the final resolution, not the resolution they had hoped for, but one with all the blood and death that we or any Elizabethan audience would want. In fact, as is perfectly fitting for the play, it's too much. We the audience get what we paid for. And at the same time, when we finally get it, we're sorry. We look on in woe and wonder. A state in which we are beyond expectation, in which nothing can surprise us. It's in this state that we finally meet Fortinbras, the enemy of Denmark, who arrives as its savior. And in our dumbfounded condition, enemy and savior are all one. Okay, my intention in giving uh, this abbreviated run-through of the play... I love it, we have cheap seats up here, this is good. (laughs) Uh, My intention uh, in rehearsing this uh, is to indicate that there's not only a method, but also a, a formal beauty to the confusion that Shakespeare creates. It strikes me that Shakespeare intentionally uses his audience's expectations for his own artistic purposes in much the same way that a great musical composer does. Uh, Here I'm thinking in particular of the false endings of Beethoven, where having introduced, fully developed, and thoroughly complicated a theme, Beethoven finally moves confidently toward a resolution. But then one measure from the promised end, he aborts it and returns to the theme. And he does this repeatedly. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. You hear the cadence, the we're coming but um bad. And then back we go. And he does it again and again. Eventually we learn to expect that our expectations will not be satisfied. At least not the way that we expect. You get that? When the end finally comes, it leaves us in a state of wonder, such that the silence after the last note is both expected and a surprise. In the case of Hamlet, the play and the character, this pattern of frustration reshaping expectation starts with the opening scene. And by the end of the play, this orchestrated disorientation produces in the audience a wonderful amazement in which confusion and insight are distinct, but undivided. They are, I don't know if you use it here on campus, since you are already a social network, but uh, Facebook, one of the things that you are allowed to do, I'm told, is uh, identify any... Uh, the relationship that you're in, and you're evidently only allowed to be in one. Okay, I, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, but okay. Uh, my my point here is that the confusion and insight at the end of this play are in a relationship, um, sort of like genius and madness are in a relationship. It's it's uh, you know it's not committed, it's not loving, but. It's a relationship. Okay, okay the mousetrap. If Shakespeare uses his play to drive audiences, and especially critics, crazy, the mousetrap is one of the many ways Hamlet drives the characters around him crazy. As the host for the evening, he, purposely, he is purportedly entertaining the court. However, his manner is anything but courteous. Characteristically defying, polite expectations, he is coarse and offensive. His private purpose is to mark the king's reaction to the play, and he certainly gets a reaction. He and Horatio take Claudius' reaction as a confirmation of what the ghost said. But does he catch the conscience of the king? Hamlet may have disoriented his prey, but he has not caught Claudius. The play may work as a mouse detector, but not as a mouse trap. Certainly, Hamlet has succeeded in casting Claudius and the court into a state of confusion. And it is true that there often is greater opportunity in chaos. The problem is that there is opportunity not only for Hamlet, but also for Claudius. And as we know, Claudius has a far superior track record of seizing opportunity. What was Hamlet thinking? Uh, To understand the nature and the magnitude of what I'm arguing is a miscalculation. We need to have a clear idea of what he was aiming for in the first place. Uh, And to get an idea of that end and his strategy, I propose that we go to a different play and ask, what's in a name? The metaphor of the mouse trap obviously associates Claudius with the qualities of a mouse. Okay, no one's laughing or, you know. Okay. Uh, in Shakespeare's day, the mouse uh, had a particularly bad reputation for thieving, spoiling things, and lechery. It's not like in children's books. They've really come clean since Shakespeare's day. Um, More interesting for our purposes, though, uh, is the identification of the play as a trap. Just as mice had a reputation that is largely lost to us, so the mousetrap. The mousetrap had, and this is where we'll shift over here shortly, uh, had theological significance. Though hard for us to imagine, uh, the mousetrap was, in Shakespeare's time, uh, understood, if not universally, uh, at least uh, uh, from time to time, as a type of the cross. Uh, And let me try to explain. The image uh, of the trap arises out of the church fathers, who often thought of the redemption as being accomplished by God's deceit of the devil. Gregory of Nyssa gives a particularly compelling formulation in his great catechism, referring to the Incarnation as, quote, in some measure a fraud and a surprise. It, not your typical catechism answer for what the Incarnation is. He explains that it was not, quote, by pure deity alone, but by deity veiled in human nature, that God, without the knowledge of his enemy, got within the lines of him who had man in his power. It is therefore by means of a certain deceit that God carried out this scheme on our behalf. Gregory defends the justice of God's deceitful scheme, and his argument suggests that anything other than deceit would have fallen short of true justice. If justice is giving each his due, deceit is precisely what the great deceiver deserves. As Gregory explains, deceit is neither good nor bad in itself. You may think I'm deceiving you, I don't know. It's neither good nor bad in itself. Gregory uses the analogy to uh, a drug. It is like a drug, which can be used as a medicine or a poison. And the devil's deception of Eve, for Gregory, is poison. God's deception of the devil is the antidote. The early fathers liked the image of Christ on the cross as bait, on a fish hook. They liked it. Uh, it's Augustine who introduces the image of the mouse trap. Augustine writes quote, The devil jumped for joy when Christ died, and by the very death of Christ the devil was overcome. He took, as it were, the bait in the mouse trap. He rejoiced at the death, thinking himself death's commander but that which caused his joy dangled the bait before him. The Lord's cross was the devil's mousetrap. The bait which caught him was the death of the Lord. The association of mousetrap and redemption is still around in the late Middle Ages. Uh, The most striking example is in the Marode altarpiece, which is what uh, I have projecting here. This triptych. Has, has anyone been to the Cloisters Museum in New York and seen this? Okay. Um, those of you who have wonderful. Everyone vote wonderful. Museum. Okay. Okay. All of you, um, uh, talk your instructor into giving you a long weekend assignment, which requires a trip to New York City, <laughs> and get up, get up to the Cloisters. Uh, it's. Um, basically pieces of five, I think, you know, 12th-century monasteries from France that form uh, uh, connected cloisters. They basically were souvenirs. They, the, the, the monastery and the artwork souvenirs that Rockefeller brought back from a trip to France. Okay. Uh, different kind of tourism. Um, <laughs> but take advantage of it. Okay. And this you will see on display there. Uh, It's a triptych, and we have, you probably have at least seen uh, Christmas cards with this annunciation in the middle, where you, uh, and sorry, I'm not really sure about how all my slides work here, but we'll, uh, on the, you'll see here uh, the uh, proto child Jesus on the cross coming through the glass window on a beam down to Mary at the moment of the Annunciation. Um, And there's much in this that could be deciphered. This table has 16 sides that usually is associated with the 16 prophets of the Old Testament. And it goes on from there. You can can write a dissertation on this. Um, What I want to focus on here is uh, Saint Joseph on the right-hand side, up in his workshop? Uh, if you zero in on some of these objects, what you find—he's making out here in this—he's making mouse traps. Okay, uh, seems strange uh, until you read the Church Fathers and find out that this is associated with uh, the redemption. Uh, how many people here have, uh, in an English class, uh, read or maybe have had the good fortune to go someplace and see uh, the York Crucifixion, the medieval uh, play cycle? Okay. The, the York Crucifixion, it's one of the um, Corpus Christie plays, I think, uh, that were performed uh, by the different guilds in York, and uh, one of the plays was the Crucifixion of Christ, and it was performed by uh, the nail makers, okay, uh, to show the, you know, excellence of their guild. It's, you know, the, the water carriers were the ones who put on Noah's flood, Okay, there, there, there's some real irony uh, in all of this um, and and a lot of humor that is surprising. Uh, you wouldn't think to play the crucifixion for laughs, but that's precisely what they do. The, the play would be performed up on a, a stage, people standing on the ground, and you have the soldiers crucifying Christ up there, and they're soldiers-slash- nail makers. Uh, and what you have is the the cross is not upright, it's on the stage, and they are nailing Christ to the cross. Turns out, though, that whoever drilled the holes didn't drill them in the right spots, and basically the cross doesn't fit Christ. It's too big. Okay, And so they start Basically, it's like the three stooges complaining about each other not get doing their part right in this. Okay, this is a very different angle on the crucifixion than you're accustomed to. And this is in you know, a very Catholic place and time. You might feel a little uncomfortable about laughing at this. Okay. Especially when they start stretching Christ's arm. Okay. You know, buffoonery. Okay, Physical humor. So, and they play it so that everyone is breaking a gut. And then what they do is once they have it all done, they lift the cross. And there you see Christ on the cross. And you realize what you've been laughing at. Don't you feel bad? What is this play trying to do? Uh, it's trying to put people in touch with feelings that they should have. Theologically, what you would say is, those soldiers, they're so bad for doing what they did. What's the theology of this, though? Okay, why is he being crucified? It's us, all of our sins. And we feel guilty for have, having laughed at this. It's perfect. Okay, you should laugh, and laugh and feel guilty, okay? That's what I'm trying to get you to do. You don't know about Catholic guilt? Is that that later in the lecture series? The way the audience is caught in this is striking, and it's something that Shakespeare as a boy uh, might likely have seen. Whereas your crucifixion was designed to catch the conscience of everyone in the audience. Make them feel bad about laughing and basically make them feel bad about being responsible for the crucifixion of Christ. That applies to everyone. We have another example from the period, just to give you another analog, uh, of an account of a different play performed in Shakespeare's day, that had uh, a similar effect but just on one person in the audience the play involved a woman who murders her husband by driving a nail through his temple while he's sleeping okay this is great stuff for the stage okay you know pig's blood it just it's great well as this is being performed this woman in the audience says okay i did it Long and the short of it is they exhume her husband's body, and yeah, he's got a nail through his <laughs> temple. Okay. Uh, this plate caught her conscience. Okay. Anyone here do something like that? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> that's, that's during exam week that those things really kind of. Okay, back to the mousetrap. Uh, we all undoubtedly agree that Claudius is a devil and deserves whatever he gets. But does the play really share in the power of the cross, Hamlet's mousetrap? And should Hamlet, Elsinore's director in residence, be playing God? Claudius is a devil, but it doesn't follow that Hamlet is God. I think it's fair to say that we in the audience see the justice of what Hamlet is doing. With Hamlet, we would love to see the play catch Claudius and affect his demise. And as English majors, which I know many of you are, uh, you undoubtedly, and do you have drama here? Is that a major? It's not a major, but no. Okay, okay. Thespians, um, you, you too would love to see the mousetrap as a vindication of your choice of a major or an avocation, you you know, the sort of thing that the vulgar masses see as useless, and you know, your parents think leads to panhandling as a career. (laughs) Unfortunately for English majors, thespians, Claudius' reaction is more ambiguous. Than that of the guilty widow or the people of York. It's not altogether clear what actually happens when the play is interrupted by Claudius. Claudius calls for light, and in what looks to me like a parodic version of divine creation, light is produced, but instead of order emerging out of chaos, the play is aborted and Elsinore is cast into confusion. Hamlet's plot to catch the conscience of the king has it worked? Does the king's cutting the play short reveal his guilt? Hamlet and Horatio are convinced, but no one else draws the same conclusion. If the play within the play catches the king's conscience, it certainly doesn't catch him. In fact, we could argue that the mousetrap does more to ensnare Hamlet. Rather than catching Claudius, the play reveals Hamlet's suspicions to Claudius. With the play, Hamlet tips his hand, The king now knows that Hamlet knows. This is a major strategic blunder. With the king alerted and on the defensive, Hamlet is at a serious disadvantage. From this point on, he is not going to give Hamlet an easy shot at him. Indeed, Claudius is going to begin actively plotting against him before long Hamlet will be sailing to England. Now, the mousetrap is not unique within the play. Other traps in a similar way, seem to go awry. Polonius warns Ophelia that vows, at the beginning of the play, vows are often used as, quote, springs to catch woodcocks, that is, bird traps. And he instructs Rinaldo on how to spy in Laertes. He says, your bait of falsehood takes the carp of truth. Expert in the art of spying, he subsequently will use his daughter as bait having her take on the false appearance of an innocent girl at prayer in order to find out what truly is on Hamlet's mind. What we see in Polonius' plots is their failure. On the contrary, uh, sorry, Polonius does not protect his daughter or find out the truth about Hamlet. On the contrary, he becomes, as Hamlet points out, the image of Jephthah, who unwittingly sacrifices his own daughter, In Hamlet, plots consistently come back to bite the plotters. The engineer is hoist on his own petard. That is, the bomb explodes in the bomb maker's face. In his demise, Laertes, having gained a measure of self-knowledge, uses the image of the woodcock, which he might have learned from his father, but he applies it quite differently. Stabbed with his own poisoned sword, he says, why, as a woodcock to mine own spring, I am justly killed with mine own treachery. Claudius' death exhibits the same justice. Having poisoned the cup as well as the sword, he is not only stabbed but forced to drink the poison. Horatio, I mean, it seems like overkill. You know, Drink this, okay. It's justice. Horatio aptly sums up the scene and indeed the action of the whole play as, quote, purpose mistook, fallen on the inventor's heads. In Hamlet, those who invent plots and schemes are caught in their own traps. The justice of this is more than poetic. In fact, it's solid Augustinian theology. The ultimate victim of sin is is, in fact, the sinner. I don't know if you if Augustine, I think it's at the beginning of the City of God, he says, the martyrs, hey, they're in heaven. Okay, those who killed the martyrs, hmm, they're the ones who are going to be sorry. Uh, it's the sinner who suffers. What about the audience? We might think that we are safely removed from the action of the play. But if we put our fingers on our own psychic pulses will find that we are very much caught up in the action of the play. And if we check our consciences, we should find that we've been mousetrapped. Traps are enticing, alluring, whether the bait is an advertisement or a Twinkie or a Twitter feed. Every day we find ourselves drawn to do things that are not only not in our best interest, but are in some measure our own undoing. Anyone want to hear, you know, confess their Twinkie addiction and be free or. We have a million ways to divert our attention uh, from our own self destructiveness. Uh, or if we do recognize it, we have a million and one ways to rationalize it away. I mean, my parents are paying a lot of money for this education. My blood sugar is really low. I need to you know, study, use my time well. (laughs) Eating that Twinkie is a moral obligation, (laughs) right? In Hamlet, the bait is revenge, and we want it. When Claudius is at prayer, we want to see Hamlet kill him. Now, in everyday life, we... Polite people here, good Christians, wouldn't want to be caught dead wanting someone else dead. But when we pay money and go to the theater, I, I think I saw I saw Gladiator playing on one of the I love that movie? But in watching Hamlet, um, even though we don't, you know, embrace an ethos of revenge, we complain when Hamlet doesn't give us what we want, or that we have to wait for it. The whole critical tradition of Hamlet, which has given us Hamlet as the man who cannot act, is a testament to our desire through the generations for revenge and resolution, and frustration with Hamlet for not giving it to us. In Hamlet, Shakespeare wants us to become more finely attuned to our own desires, our desire for revenge, in the, in particular, and to experience it as what it is—something we should feel guilty about. Now, that's a dirty trick: right? giving you a revenge tragedy and then making you feel all guilty about wanting revenge. Anyone have a roommate like that? You know, there's this sort of spiritual one-upsmanship that people sometimes have. Shakespeare should be ashamed of himself. <laughs> uh, how does Shakespeare turn a revenge tragedy into a mouse trap? In part by giving us an avenger with a conscience. Sounds I I gotta quote that or trademark it or something. An avenger with a conscience. Right? More precisely, he places Hamlet in a Senecan, that is a pagan revenge tragedy, and burdens him with a Christian conscience. This creates serious ethical dissonance. It raises fundamental questions. Is revenge good or bad? Is it good or bad in a Senecan revenge tragedy? Or is nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so? These are questions that Hamlet raises uh, for the likes of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and for us. And I hope we do better than Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Why does Shakespeare mouse trap us? Why? Uh, to make a point about revenge, well, I would argue that the point he's trying to make is much broader. Uh, we, too, are caught in a world with conflicting ethical codes. Um, how quick are we to throw away our Christian conscience? Navigating the corporate, academic, ecclesiastical, intramural, I don't know what um, you know people probably have you know, tried to get in line here ahead of others and, uh, we, we may in fact be caught in conflicting worlds more than we acknowledge uh, we may live in more of a Senecan revenge tragedy than we think Alternatively, uh, think about how often we don't take action making the excuse of sort of the daintiness of our conscience. We live in a world in which if you're dainty about your conscience, you're not going to get anything done. How do we take action without losing our soul? If we act, we may sin. If we don't act, we may sin. Commission and omission are our scylla and charybdis. I'm not going to call him St. Hamlet. If you think it's easy to live ethically, it surely is a sign that you live in a very small world. Try to be Prince of Denmark. When your father just died, and your scuzzy uncle has bedded your mother, and your father's ghost has ordered you to kill him, and your country's on the brink of war, and your girlfriend just committed suicide, and you're struck with friends like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. (laughs) it would test your faith. And in this play, the only support for your faith is this creepy mixture of Catholic, Protestant and pagan, Stoic doctrine. We may be thinking that we have an advantage over Shakespeare's audience. We have an ethical code. We have the true faith. We might even have a plan. Uh Uh-oh. Well, this play should make us think twice. Uh, We see what happens to people who think they have a plan. So if you can't have a plan, what can you do? Uh, Well, you can do what Hamlet does. I think I saw it on a bumper sticker WW He goes into the final scene of the greatest revenge tragedy in history without a plan How great is that? (laughs) Uh, Okay Given that, it's at this point I should toss my script Okay I'm not there yet. Uh, Let's look at the last three passages uh, on your handout from Act Five, Scene Two. We have in that uh, lines four to eleven, Hamlet says praised, be rashness. And our indiscretions sometimes serve us well when our deep plots do Paul, when they fail. And that's... Rashness, we don't normally think of that as a virtue, and maybe it's not. But what we have here is plotting on one hand and those fail, and rashness. Well, it's what he exhibited on the pirate ship with, or on the ship with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. When the plan came to him, it wasn't a plan. He just did it. Forged the letters opportunistically. It wasn't a plan, but it was a great success. I know you feel sorry for Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Just get over it and what does he see out of this there's a divinity that shapes our ends rough hew them how we will come back to that in a second look at the second one right now though Uh, Hamlet has arrived at a state that he calls perfect conscience notice the king tells him that or, uh, Horatio tells him, you know, the king's going to know pretty soon that you're back. In other words, you might want to do something before he knows. And Hamlet does not use the advantage. All he does is he relies on perfect conscience. Maybe that is a weapon, the best weapon. In that last one, uh, he begins with, Uh, at the the very end, uh, about line 220. He says, There's a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it be now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. Are you dizzy? The readiness is all. Since no man has aught of what he leaves, what is it to leave betimes? let be. There's a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. Uh, Turn back to there's a divinity that shapes our ends. Rough hew them how we will. Uh, The master metaphor of this play is carpentry. The time is out of joint. Joining is putting furniture together, something St. Joseph may have done once upon a time. The goodly frame the earth, okay, it's, the earth is something that God framed out in the first three days and then finished in the next three days, okay, this framing something. Rough hewing, this is the, the rough carpentry, okay, the, 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 what the carpenter does roughly, and then the skilled, more, more finely skilled interior carpenter comes in and finishes things off nicely. Okay, what we have here is an image of how we in our rashness, clumsiness, are like the rough carpenters. We don't finish anything off, we don't make anything right. But there is this divinity that does. At five two, back down there the what is it? Can I just play the teacher for a minute and I mean this does this kind of lack of pronoun reference really bother you? If it be now what what is it? It might yeah, please destiny and what is he destined to do pretty soon is it death is, there, is this just a fatalism here notice uh, we had that remember that soliloquy to be or not to be Okay. supposedly about to live or die sort of breaks down a bit but to be or not to be. If it be now, it won't be later. What, what would fit in there? Well, if he dies now, at least you don't have to die later, right? Okay? And if it's not now, well, guess what? It's going to come. But then what about the readiness is all? What do you have to be ready for? Ready for your death? The readiness is all. But then, look at the let be. Does that resolve the to be or not to be? (coughs) Let be. It would seem not, because he's just said, accept your death. But then he says, let be. That's not not be, it's be, right? This sort of amen. What is he accepting here? And... What I think you see is an acceptance of death that is at the very same time finally an acceptance of life, of his destiny. To accept your destiny, you have to be ready for your death. To fulfill your mission, can you do it if you're not ready to die? He's ready to die, and that readiness in fact, is all, it's all you need. And that ready has another echo about something when the master comes back, will he find the servant ready? Notice, what does a servant have to do? Nothing, just be ready. Uh, Hamlet has arrived at a state of readiness. Uh, It's something quite different than having a plan is not plotting and scheming. So maybe our job is to be ready uh, when the master approaches, calls us. Um, This in fact may be the way the real mousetrap, not Hamlet's play, but the real mousetrap, this may be the way it works. Uh, all that's needed is for us to stop plotting and scheming and to know truly that the readiness is all. That being said, I encourage you to plan carefully your study time, okay? And don't, a, a disclaimer I'm not, I'm not saying to wing it, okay, on exams or anything like that. But when it comes to revenge, it's good advice okay thank you very much